I think complexity is also something that you can learn. And what I like about big companies is generally you're walking into a set of problems and you have the opportunity to, first of all, take a fresh look at those problems, hopefully. Even if you have to make a decision on day two, you can start making informed decisions and you're building strategies of how to handle chaos and how to refine it and restructure it. It's why, you know, I hate to keep going back to sports analogies, but I'll say, you know, it's why people like Phil Jackson come up with a, a strategy like the triangle offense. The problem is that you can't use the same strategy every time and I think that's why I like to go to different companies at different levels because you build a different set of tools. Welcome everybody. My name is Haresh Singhani. This is Conversations with Haresh. We'll be talking to people of varied backgrounds, covering various topics. I'm very excited to be able to share these with you. The goal is to increase curiosity and empathy amongst all of us to help us grow professionally and personally at all levels. And of course, we also want to make sure that this is fun. So thank you again, and we'll look forward to having you. Hi, everybody. This is Conversations with Haresh. I am Haresh. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This time we'll be talking with Charles Griffith, asking about how he has created success and how life has created success for him. Also, some of the lessons he's learned along the way. So thank you again for joining us. Hi, Charles. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So it's been a while since we chatted. I uh, hope life's been treating you well. As I mentioned earlier, I'm on this journey to record uh, some of the experiences and some of the the fellow humans that have most of these uh, people or guests on this program have been in technology, but some of them are uh, business professionals and, and it's going to be a broad swath of people, but it, I'm sure it'll be great to have you and the audience will enjoy whatever experiences you want to share. As I mentioned, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the professional side and then we'll also talk a little bit about the personal to balance out how to achieve happiness, meaning, growth, etc. in life. So it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Even if I become a, a good example of uh, what not to do, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the Thomas Edison motto for life, right? It's, it's what was it? I, I know now 5,000 ways how not to. Exactly. You not only brought good things to life, whether that's just the tagline they used after the fact of exploiting his inventions, but either way, right? If you leave a change behind, I consider that to be a success, positive or negative. Exactly. Exactly. And I think one of the things he had was even when he failed, he's like, okay, now I know that one path that doesn't work, right? So I may still have a lot more paths to explore. But uh, so in some ways, we're all doing that. Right? We don't know when we start out on new journeys as to what's going to be the outcome until it's done. It's like Mr. Nelson Mandela said that uh, things sometimes appear impossible or opaque until they are done. So you only know after the fact, unfortunately. <laughs> but as I mentioned, it's been a while since uh, we had a chance to sync up, uh, probably at least about a year, I think. So what have you been up to? Uh, I understand you're still at quiet platforms if LinkedIn is to be accurate. Yes, it is accurate. Yes, I'm, I'm still at, at quiet, actually, um, like everyone, right? This is not our favorite year, right? As we look at, at uh, the industry and we look at, you know, how it's impacting a lot of people in technology specifically, right, that are facing a very tough year. In our particular case, we, like many uh, startups, although we're very fortunate to be an, an AEO company, went to the uh, all-you-can-eat buffet, as I like to say, and, and we took something of everything, right, and, and tried to build way beyond our means in 2022 and 2023 like it is a, a correction in so many ways is basically a refocusing of what we do and and looking at you know where there is opportunity for profitability and then building out from there which is really kind of like you mentioned with Thomas Edison it's a, a lesson learned that we seem to have to continuously learn and and uh, relearn over and over again so but from a, a quiet platforms perspective and where we're at I'm, I'm pretty uh, excited to basically be going through this transformation and where we are this year. I see. I see. Where is the team? You guys are distributed, right? Uh, I know you have a lot of people in Seattle, but elsewhere as well? Right. We have a lot of people in Seattle because a lot of us are ex-Amazon, which was the, uh, the drawing force that brought so many people to Seattle. We also have Boston, which is uh, where one of the uh, primary acquisitions that makes up Quiet was um, founded. That's part of uh, 
Originally, that was Quiet Logistics, which was founded by the same team that created uh, Locust after founding Quiet Logistics. So we have a large engineering team there. We have a, a large presence in Hyderabad as well. So um, we're really, and we have a, a grouping of people that are also in places like San Francisco and also Pittsburgh, where you know, kind of AEO is headquartered. So a very distributed team, which is good when you're doing something that has a national presence, right? Having multiple time zones and having, uh, you know, 24 by 7 support. The best way to do that is to have people living in those areas and in time zones that are complementary to those. Makes sense. Makes sense. And also sometimes it makes it easier to tap into the talent pools because maybe sometimes one location is not enough to hire the people that you need. Just to briefly summarize, you had a very uh, successful career before Amazon. Then you went to Amazon, what, uh, 15-ish years ago, and you were there for seven, eight years, was it? Yeah. Yes, about that time. Yeah, I went in 2006, as you said, without saying it, I was already old. I'd already done uh, adventures and I started in video games. I'd done payments. I'd done uh, a variety of startups, including encryption. But Immediately before Amazon, I'd got infected with the idea of automation. And so I came to Amazon intentionally to really kind of get a PhD in how fulfillment automation worked. And oh, okay. Okay. Uh, that's that's how I ended up there. I see. Uh, in 2006 specifically for, I stayed in the transportation uh, technology space for my entire eight years there. Got it. Got it. And so between the time when you left Amazon to the time you joined Quiet, I understand you had one of the big chunks of time was uh, a startup of your own. Yeah, so that, that was mile zero, also in logistics. So as I left Amazon, I started working in a last mile platform called Mile Zero, which is now powering Staples and all of their last mile delivery throughout the U.S. They actually have a model where they have the branded delivery that everyone sees, and then they have a under-the-radar version that is basically doing a lot of delivery also to commercial locations, but also end consumers, especially with the disruption of COVID. And it's also being used for delivery in places like Australia with a large company called Harvey Norman, which is kind of a foreign idea to those of us still in the U.S. where it's a, a big box store that works and they have 200 plus locations. And then finally, that particular journey, which started as a privately funded uh, Silicon Valley backed adventure was picked up by private equity. And at that particular point, we started doing rollout for groceries. So there's some grocers that are using that platform now, which is what I was working on before I joined Quiet. Excellent, excellent. I guess this is one of the reasons I was asking uh, kind of your journey up till now, because we got to know a little bit about Quiet platforms. So once you were acquired by private equity, you were there for some period of time. Was it over a year? Or was it oh, longer? yeah. You know, everyone kind of thinks that the only reason you stay at these is because of the acquisition. But I actually had no intention of leaving. It was really the opportunities with quiet. But I was there for two and a half, maybe oh, close, okay. Okay. close to almost three years uh, post-acquisition. And so what, what led you to, you know, take up the quiet challenge? You know, when you're in these spaces, I, the thing that I always tell people is never be motivated by money, never be motivated by role. Don't be, those will all come if you succeed, right? And going back even to Amazon, the reason I went there was was specifically to do something historic, right? You want to work on something, a big problem that's transformational. You want something that you honestly don't know if you can do and whether it's even possible to do. And I think you know, that was the original appeal of, say, Amazon, for example. They used to really emphasize that idea of, you know, work hard, make history. That's changed over the years, like every company. Have fun, made. right? Wasn't have fun one of it? I think I, I like to say that that was implied or, or basically aspirational. <laughs> that was the part I wasn't sure was real. But, um, yeah, <laughs> have fun was in there somewhere. Was, as as yeah. Mr. Jobs used to say, because people used to ask him, I think, that do you want Apple employees to be happy or something? He used to say something to the effect, I don't know if they're happy here, but they love it. It's interesting, just to digress for a second, I had a, I won't name what company, a very senior leader that liked to, you know, when people would give feedback about why something wasn't working and why they weren't happy, he was, he had this uh, saying, why should you be happy? <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's more about why don't you focus on the problem and happiness will be a, a result. But he did it in a very confrontational way, which some of us I found, uh, you know, there's a whole separate Jimmy Jones kind of thing about early Amazon, right? There's certain personalities that gravitate towards high expectations and that type of motivation. Ultimately, I, I think, you know, coming back to this and looking at something big with quiet, it was really another opportunity to, in some sense, get the band back together. Because as I mentioned, a lot of the Amazonians that are here, I worked with back in, as we built out Amazon as a carrier, formerly called TBA, Transportation by Amazon, and then ultimately became the foundation of what is now known as Amazon Logistics. So a lot of people that had grown, you know, had an additional eight or 10 years in their career, I got the opportunity to bring in to quiet and, and work with again. But also the problem itself wasn't a, a rinse and repeat. There are a lot of problems that you see over and over again, right? Uh, taking, maybe it's a, a variation, take a brand all the way to fruition in terms of manufacturer to consumer direct or, you know, provide an effective warehouse, uh, you know, rebuild one of the common, you know, technology uh, paradigms. But this was an opportunity really to say, how can we rethink the way that retailers uh, are able to engage with consumers from a fulfillment perspective and with the backing of a very large customer, which I think that allows you to jump to scale much faster than if you're starting out of the gate, as I did with Mile Zero. That's a... That's a 10-year journey, right, to, to build that kind of, uh, if you're lucky and you're, you're able to get traction. Starting on this end of the spectrum with this type of a team was very exciting. And, and to do it in a way that was kind of the antithesis of what we did at Amazon, rather than be, you know, a single private label for delivery, which, of course, they've expanded. They've created opportunities through uh, FBA and the 3P program to ultimately become a carrier, which is how they're competing with FedEx at this point and, and other carriers for that market share. What we're doing is really more of how do we create a platform for all and really to provide additional options for retailers for fulfillment without cannibalizing their sales or competing with them. So it, it was an opportunity to do that in a way that appeals to me. And it, it's a very difficult problem. It's not one that others haven't tried to do. I think the technology has evolved to the point where it's possible, but it also takes the right type of company to be behind that. And, and a company like American Eagle is um, a collaborative company. So that also played in favor. So all of those things aligned. It's time for another chance to take another big swing. And so got I it, jumped got in it. 2022, February last got year. It. Reflecting on your journey, if I understood right, before mile zero, had you taken a swing at being an entrepreneur? I, I, I'd struck out many times at bat if that's the real question, but yes, I'd done, as I mentioned, I started out in games. I had a couple of adventures with game startups, one where we basically were doing some things with a variety of different platforms and companies. I went through some of the same learnings that all entrepreneurs kind of learn. Don't, don't be too dependent on a single uh, customer. Um, you know, that was one of the learnings. I think I worked on another startup that was actually in the uh, CRM space for garment manufacturing. We had some success moved into a 2000 factories in Mexico. That's really the, what gave me that infection for automation. The market shifted and things went the other way in terms of fulfillment. It moved from Mexico despite some of the advances with NAFTA to China. It's interesting because if you're in this industry long enough, things swing back and now we're seeing a, the pendulum shift in, in Mexico becoming a big opportunity again with things like 321 program where you can bring in goods into the U.S. with that are duty-free. So we're seeing that shift back to Mexico again, but I had built a, a startup that was really with a private label manufacturer and learned a lot about how garments are a distributed exercise and the challenge is there. One question uh, that comes to mind, which is, so there are a lot of people who are in technology, they become technology leaders, right? Whether it's a CTO or other potentially senior roles, but they may do that without having an entrepreneurial excursion or, or, or a few, <laughs> like in your case, right? And so how has having been an entrepreneur multiple times helped you be a better CTO now, do you think? Uh, if that question makes sense, right? And, oh, it, and, it and maybe even vice versa, right? Makes it, which total is sense. having the technology background. You started, you know, you studied STEM, 
and then you started as an engineer, right? And then you went into entrepreneurship. So I'm just curious in your experience, how has each of those enhanced the other? Makes complete sense. I think I started out in games way back, back when you had to write all of the drivers yourself whether it was for video, for audio, et cetera. And I sold the game directly. Uh, I went around the floor at the precursor to what is now known as E3, found publisher and, and sold a game. Each of these has been steps and a set of learnings to understand what it takes to effectively build and run a company, right? There are lessons you have to learn in terms of what are the skill sets beyond what you have perhaps as a technical or a business person to be able to launch a company? What do you need to do from a leader perspective to be able to retain, recruit, and have the right team on the field? You know, what level do you need at different points in the journey? And then just like I mentioned with strategies, right? How do you how do you build that? How do you stage it? And how much risk can you take at different points? Each of those, just like we talked about with Edison, right, and the learn and repeat and continue to hone, I think if you don't have some of those failures, you don't get to the point where you can get to a successful journey. I always feel like there's a more successful journey ahead of me and that all of the amalgam of learnings is going to give me new insights to position myself. It takes a lot of luck as well. You know, I think any of us who've listened to like NPR's How I Built This Thing, where they interview some of the best and, and biggest and most successful entrepreneurs, they one of the questions I like that the host always asks is, do you attribute your success to luck or to your skill? And 99 times out of 100, the uh, individual say it's you know mostly luck, right? It for that alignment of opportunity. Yes, you have to be ready, right? Just like an athlete going out in a big game, you have to be ready. But things have to go your way to truly succeed, right? Yeah, preparation is not sufficient, but it is absolutely necessary. And then luck is your, you know, one of the other ingredients. There's probably you know two or three key ingredients, but preparation it's not optional. Right, because otherwise luck cannot find you. And I think I think the other thing is that those learnings also tell you what you don't know. Right, I I find you know the younger you are, generally the more arrogant you are, and how you think you've got the whole world figured out. But as you go on, you learn progressively. The more you learn, the the more you know how little you know. It also tells you what do I what are the minimum requirements I need to be able to be successful. That can be. Knowing that you don't have a particular skill set, you need to find a good partner or a set of people that can do that because you can't do everything. And it also can be a way of focusing on, you know, how big is the problem you're going to try and solve when you're an entrepreneur. Generally, what I see and I think, you know, what most VCs tell you is they, they want you to be laser focused, right? It's generally not the idea. Early entrepreneurs think it's all about the idea, but it's really... Will this particular person not only have the idea, be, but be able to execute and, and drive it to fruition? And then is the opportunity of what they're going after have the multiples necessary to take this very extreme gamble? Exactly. There's another pattern to your profile or your history, which is small companies and large companies, right? So how did they, again, enhance your journey at each other? Yeah, I, I do that intentionally. You'll notice if you go through, you know, just looking at my list of tenure, which is so long, there is actually a pattern at this point. You can see that small company, uh, then large company, then back to small company. I find there's a few different things. One that I just mentioned in terms of you have resource and access from large companies that you aren't going to get at smaller companies. So if you're looking to go after a certain size problem or scope and you want to effectively be able to retain and recruit people of a certain caliber, that's very attractive. I think complexity is also something that you can learn. And what I like about big companies is generally you're walking into a set of problems and you have the opportunity to First of all, take a fresh look at those problems, hopefully. Even if you have to make a decision on day two, you can start making informed decisions and you're building strategies of how to handle chaos and how to refine it and restructure it. It's why, you know, I hate to keep going back to sports analogies, but I'll say, you know, it's why people like Phil Jackson come up with a, a strategy like the triangle offense. The problem is that you can't use the same strategy every time. 
And I think that's why I like to go to different companies at different levels because you build a different set of tools and you learn when to use them and how to use them. Those are also tools that aren't just built by the problem, it's built by the team that's there. You'll start to see certain leadership scenarios and, and problems that repeat tactics or strategies for how to uh, effectively scale the organization or unblock and resolve some of the problems that they have. And the last pattern that I'm seeing is <laughs> going into different domains, right? So logistics is one or transportation, gaming, potentially, right? For the, for the last X number of years, you are kind of sticking more on the logistics side. But obviously, and I've had the opportunity to work in many different domains over the years. It's almost like, do you, do you speak uh, languages beyond English? You know, I, I hear plenty of them from my wife, uh, you know, but I know how to answer them all. And it's basically just to accept the feedback and move on. But no, I don't, I don't speak any other languages. Something that I wish I did have an aptitude for, because we do like to go through Central America, been throughout the world it's interesting to see the evolution of like Google Translator and how close we are to having that kind of live translation and that blocking because I think that while people, I, I believe people are the same in, in every place, understanding those nuances is many times understood through the language and the culture. I feel like I miss that. I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot or... or uh... No, no, not, not at all. <laughs> Thank you. Make you feel inadequate because I was forced to learn multiple languages. Yeah. I'm still in some ways learning English. It's only been 39 years. Um, the Beyond mastery level, but uh, nonetheless. <laughs> Just like Mr. Edison, right? We're all still trying different paths. The reason I brought up the kind of the language metaphor is to me, when I was, you know, so I, I, there's a couple of languages of Northern India that I can speak. One of them was my native tongue. And then of course, English, like I, I was born in a totally different culture than the culture I live in today, right? It, because I was born in India and I was there for 13 years, etc. But there's some parallels between that and like working in different domains. Because when you work in one domain, there's a whole bunch of things that you may start thinking as a given and universally true. But then when you end up working in the next domain or a different domain, drastically different domain, then you realize that all these things that I thought were givens that should be true across the universe, they're not, right? <laughs> a few of them will be. But the tricky part is until you go to the other domains, you won't know which of the ones that you suspect may not be givens which ones are and which ones aren't. And obviously, two domains can share similarities. And so then, in order to discover that though, even those are not universal truths, you have to go to a third domain, where every new domain you'll try, you'll discover fewer new things, just because you're covering more of them in, in the domains you already know. There's a lot of, uh, probably, value in taking learnings from one domain and taking it to another domain, because you will bring that diverse perspective that the people or the team members who've been in that domain for a while may not have. And sometimes it, it could be, quote, stupid questions that you end up asking because, right, you're like, I've never seen it done this way before. I know I haven't been in this domain kind of thing, but it seems like very rich, rich journey so far. But I think that's an interesting point. You just made, a, uh, made an observation. And I think early on in my career, you know, I spent a long time in games, right? I, I spent somewhere on the order of eight to 10 years, I started to realize you'd asked about early startups, right? I realized I didn't have enough diverse in terms of the way I thought the leadership and the way that I interacted and scope and so forth and certain key domains that I was, I didn't have expertise in. That's why I forced myself to start picking up other experiences. And I think this is something I recommend to kids that are starting out today is try and go into those different areas for some of the same reasons you just mentioned. One is the skill set. The second is, as you mentioned, there is almost culture. So I did one of the adventures I had as I moved away from games is I worked for a company called Microcatom, which was actually uh, acquired by IBM. And ultimately, at the time I worked for it, it was owned out of Japan. But it was the oldest CAD company ever. It started in Lockheed back in the 60s. And so I've never seen code that old and that ugly. Um, knock on wood, hopefully I never see that again. But I also realized, you know, we had a lot of scientists, right, which is a completely different personality than 
the types of kind of iconoclasts that are drawn into gaming. A lot of mavericks and a lot of self-starters and so forth. Equally brilliant people, but different. And so you start to get that experience. Similarly, as I went into payments, right, a, a whole nother type of community, some of them being very much like entrepreneurs. The area I worked at was a division of Western Union and First Data where they, it was a startup that was acquired actually by First Data called Card Services. And it was very interestingly built on the backs of a set of distributed salespeople that were able to sell basically auths and settlements to various customers. And they made the initial foray of a lot of the early internet payments companies that were there everything from B Central to Earthlink, a whole group of people that were driven on a whole set of different principles. But all of these experiences together, along with the people that are there to support those particular businesses, it just gives you more and more ways to think and consider those problems and to pick up tools that you can put together for new areas. And as you said, I, I have been kind of sticking in the logistics space, mainly because I think that it's an opportunity. It's kind of a wild west where there is a lot of traditional thinking. It goes back, you know, to the beginning of time, right, where we've been creating this type of fulfillment ecosystem as long as we've been doing trading between different social groups and so forth. But the technology is reinventing it, right, and the ability to rethink and redecide how people are accessing products is happening at a much faster rate. And so it's an exciting area, and I can still apply all of the different things that I've learned in these other areas. There's a lot of gamification, for example. There are aspects of 3D modeling that are coming into warehouses. So all of this is kind of converging in these spaces. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination or intersections, uh, interesting intersections happening now. You have such a you know rich story. We can keep going for hours and hours, but... Um, one thing we had talked about, actually, which is how to get involved with companies. So, so you know, it's one thing to immerse yourself in whatever your, quote, day job happens to be at the time, right? And obviously, when you are taking up challenges that are intense, there's not a lot of time left for other things. But there is this few of us or many of us do end up mentoring or advising Right, whether it's other teams, other individuals, friends, sometimes formally, sometimes informally. And we had talked about this, I think, one or two coffees ago, which is something that you were saying you were potentially looking forward to or you wanted to maybe experiment more. I don't remember exactly what you said, but I, I don't know if you recall. So I'm just curious, given the consumption or all-consuming role and roles that you've had, have you had much opportunity? I know, I know that the team members who get to mentor Obviously, right? Whether it's 10 or a thousand, there's a lot of opportunity to work with people and kind of say, okay, maybe think about things this way or that way as far as your growth is concerned or how you're looking at solving the problems. But when it comes to going outside, whether it's mentoring, in your case, you know, fellow technology leaders or sometimes more junior people as well as maybe entrepreneurs and so on, right? It, it, have you had an opportunity to do some of that? And if so, how's it been going? It's interesting. So the first first part of the question I'd say is certainly there's a time barrier, um, but there's also a barrier of when you work for the larger companies, the restrictions they place on you in terms of formal participation. So I've kept it. I've kept it very informal. One of the things I do believe, though, is that you have to give back, right? I wish I had found more people that were not just looking to take shares in my company, but were actually looking to provide just general you know, coaching and experience and direction. And I do have friends like yourself, other friends of mine that are out there doing this, not for any kind of return, but just basically to try and impart some success on different people. So I'll routinely go through pitch decks or go through coaching opportunities, or even just talk to people who are thinking at different levels, hey, I'm thinking I'll do this startup. There's one that is in the Seattle area. I won't mention who he is, but he was a very senior executive. He's like, I'm thinking maybe I should go out and do a startup because I'm leaving a lot of money on the table. And I said to this particular person, Person. Don't be thinking of a startup as an opportunity to you know, make money. Think of it as an opportunity to basically learn and to push yourself beyond where you're going to get existing opportunities. Even though this guy was at a, a C-level position within companies, the autonomy you get and the ability to truly own the strategy and the decision-making all the way through 
and also to do it at an IC level in many cases is something that will make you more valuable. And if you don't succeed in six months, you will be more valuable than you were when you started. And those positions will still be there. In fact, you'll probably have better opportunities as a result. And so this individual took that advice and I'm sure he had plenty of other good advice pushing him in that direction. And he went out and he founded a very successful company that's in the Seattle area. And he goes back to that being a point of, you know, learning where it really changed the way he thought. So the point is not that I can give good advice. The point is that you never know what will resonate with somebody and they'll take um, the core learning. And that's that's what I think is is the most rewarding thing about this, about, you know, just working with other entrepreneurs and people um, trying to get their businesses in order. Yeah, what I found and Somebody asked me, actually, they were recently wanted me to sign on as a formal advisor, very early stage startup. As a part of that, they're like, oh, I need to make sure that our board and everybody else feels comfortable having you join us. And so can you tell us where else you've done this, right? <laughs> and so I ended up doing a, an inventory, which I had never done uh, in the last whatever, 20 or so years, I've been probably formally and informally mentoring, advising different entrepreneurs or even corporate leaders. But it was about 20, probably 15 to 20 significant advisory engagements I had in the last whatever that many years. And, and, and this is also a sliver of what I've been doing, right? It's kind of a funny thing because to your point, it's not so much that you or I or other people will be like, okay, we know more than you do. So you need me or I could really help you. Maybe we do have more experience sometimes. The key things are that we've had different experience and we've had somewhat similar experiences, right? So it's kind of a, a oxymoron or a contradiction there. It's like I've, I've had some similar experiences as to what you might be attempting to do, but I've also had different experiences. So I'm going to bring that uh, to the conversation. But the empathy element is is a big one, right? And then having having a safe space or ideas and issues can be aired. I think especially for early entrepreneurs where they may have had success, where they've gotten venture capital or they may have angels and so forth, it's hard to know who is giving you advice that isn't for the benefit of them, right? Unbiased, the empathy and also just the ability to ask questions and not have to put on a front or a, a particular uh, project, a particular level of expertise with that that group because you're afraid you won't be able to keep their investment or retain them for the second round or whatever whatever it is I find that that is something that's lacking and there've been you know a variety of different uh, entrepreneurial I guess like tech stars and so forth where they've tried to set up these environments but I find at the end of the day, it's great to just have the one-on-one -on -one piece where you have the ability to know the person deeply and be able to trust them. And at the same point, if you find the right people where they're doing it just because it's for the good of everybody, it what goes around comes around. And ultimately, you never know when somebody will provide that feedback back to you or give you an insight that you wouldn't have gotten other than by doing this coaching. And Yeah. Now, one thing that I really like about just kind of being engaged is it's a two-way street, right? It's not, it's, there's so much learning that happens by the person who might be being the mentor, right? Because I ran into a few entrepreneurs at some events, uh, I think earlier part of this year. And one of the, one of them is like, he's in his twenties, probably mid twenties or early twenties. And they think very, very differently. And I feel so old sometimes, right? Because <laughs> the, the, uh, some of the, you know, the fundamentals are true, which is you need a customer and you need somebody to give you a dollar, right? If that doesn't happen, you don't have a business, right? But the, the technologies, the tool sets, they're a lot better, right? And the modern tool sets, I mean, take an example of like this podcast project, right? If I tried to do this 10 years ago, it would be 10 times harder probably. And if you're a 20 something entrepreneur, you could probably make a go of things with one tenth, I don't know, whatever that ratio is of hard capital. Of course, everything takes time and energy and effort than it would have taken you maybe 10, 20 years ago. But some of these latest tools, that's one of the areas where I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs are a lot more better versed than I feel like I might be is the current set of tools available, 
to get your projects done. I think at the same time, the, the flip side of it is the level of complexity, right? And how to filter out the noise. I think what is used, I mean, the internet has provided access to information and access to tools and platforms and so forth that, you know, imagine if we had that 30 years ago. But at the same time, I think the hard learnings of coming up from having none of that teach you a certain level of depth and resilience that there aren't other options, right? So having only one path, it tests your character and it tests whether or not you have the resilience to uh, buckle down and make it happen when there is no other options. I mean, I think some of the fundamentals are always going to be true, right? Grit is a necessary ingredient, right? If you don't have grit, you're going to give up too easily because path's never going to be easy. So right. sooner or later, you're going to run into some difficulty or something that's going to take more time, more effort, more energy, you know, more creativity than whatever you were prepared to do. And then if you just give up, then you're, you're not going to go anywhere. That's like a fundamental thing. Having a customer is a fundamental thing. If you don't have a customer, you don't have a business, right? Even if it's something like, you know, when Facebook got started for many, many years, they wouldn't make any money, but they had users, which were in theory the customers or eventually advertisers, right? So I'm going to shift gears a little bit in terms of just kind of Balancing life in general. I know we talked about the Amazon motto, make history, right? <laughs> Work hard and make history. Yeah, and sometimes I'm fun, exactly. <laughs> and so, as we were just talking now, you know, you do need a lot of energy, intensity, and grit to not just to probably be a successful entrepreneur, but just to succeed in life. So, how does one balance that against health, family, hobbies? community engagement, et cetera, right? So do you have any techniques or particular ideas that have worked better for you? I'm no expert in this area. I, I will say this. I think that one thing I have learned as I've gone on in life is is to learn who you are and, and learn yourself, right? Many times, again, my, my learning is, you know, someone going through life, which we all are doing, is early on, you tend to believe that you're a victim of circumstance, right? The problem is everyone around you. The problem, the challenges you have are, it's not me. But as you start to go through life, you start to realize how much the situation depends on your mentality and what you do. Ultimately, I've come down to this theory of control what you can control and worry about what you can control and then try and put yourself in a situation where it's it's the most comfortable. You don't need to suffer. And I think many of us, when we're young, we just don't solve our own problems. So what I've tried to do is focus on how do I make myself happy? One of the things I know is that just like with work, I like tough problems. So right now, for example, since COVID, I woke up one day back in about three years ago and I said, what am I living in this big house for? You know, I kind of grew up from a, a DIY culture where... You know, the whole idea was I wasn't going to live the same way my parents did. And here I am, you know, I'm living the way my parents did. So I, I said, I, this is not what I'm going to do. It's not what I, not the way I want to live. And I want to change that. And so I started looking at alternative houses and went after um, building a container house. I wish I could tell you right now that was a solved problem, but I'm still solving that problem mm -hmm. as of today. So I've gone through the entire exercise of building out the plans, learning how to do that, learning all of the challenges that are specific to the Pacific Northwest, how to avoid, you know, for example, getting mold in there by creating a vapor seal. So becoming, you know, my own level of expertise in this area. And we're at the point where we built out the foundation. We've got all the wiring and the plumbing. We've dropped all of the containers with these monstrous cranes that are five stories tall. We're doing the actual fabrication finally. And knock on wood, I'll be in there by sometime this year. That's a project. So figure out who you are and then go after those things that make you happy, even if, again, it's the same pattern that you're exercising at work, and even if you don't think you can do those well, right? I find the worst thing for me is to think that I wasted time while I was here, right? A wasted opportunity to me is the, it's not failure that, that I worry, because I do it all the time. It's not taking that chance and that opportunity, specifically in terms of this house, right? Or the way that I was living, I was thinking, I'm deferring everything for when I'm done working. What if I never get there? 
you know, I started looking at that and I found it made me infinitely more happy to look at these because these are all like mini puzzles or mini games for me to solve, whether it's a vendor problem, whether it's how do you solve this particular problem. There weren't that many container houses when I started. I have to say many have, you know, passed me on the finish line, but I'll get there eventually. I'm like the slow runner in a marathon. I will make it eventually. So when did you start on it? This would have been about 2020 is when we started. And so I, when I look back, it seems like eons and it feels like I might be buried right there next to the foundation before we're finished. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, even most of the builders take 18 months to two years on a spec home, right? Unless you're like in, in this massive subdivision somewhere in the Midwest or Mountain West, I guess, where they're, they're being built now. And in this case, I'm in, out in uh, an area called Kitsap County, which is one of the more rural areas. And yep. it's not Yelm. It's not out in the middle of the sticks in Washington State, but it's rural compared to King County, which is where Seattle is. Just from this entire exercise, COVID hit. It created the worst of all times, which I knew were coming from my supply chain experience. I tried to get my manufacturing builder to kind of allocate and buy all of these resources before the uh, supply chain collapsed but we didn't do that. So many of those we deferred. But the biggest issue we faced early on was really on the permitting side. And one of the things I learned is, is the entire model about how contracting and how labor works and how labor is paid for a county, at least in the state of Washington. It's actually the positions are paid based on population. And so they had one of the reasons it took me over a year to solve the permitting problem was because the county turns out they lost 70% of their people to King County because that being a populous county could pay more and they could work from home. Oh, wow. So, so the point being that you learn all kinds of things beyond what the original problem solved. And again, I think those are things that I'll carry with me to, you know, even work related scenarios. Yeah, wherever you go, wherever you are. Wow. And, and any, you know, techniques that are working for you, especially with regards to health? In terms of health, I think um, with the pandemic, one of the first things I started doing was running, just basically doing that at a set interval. The other thing, and that made a tremendous difference in mental health, right? Just that isolation and detachment from everything else, even without the exercise, made a huge difference. And then I introduced fasting. So every day I'm doing kind of the 16 and 8 pattern. And I oh, think well, okay. that that from uh, especially in my age bracket, you know, all that running helped to a certain degree. But if you wanted to hit weight loss and some of the other things that you couldn't control, the fasting made a tremendous difference. And again, it's interesting. You don't you, you can look on the Internet. You never know what source to continue or to try or to believe in. And it's through experimentation. But that made a tremendous difference in my life, something I'm going to continue. I actually... I'm a big believer in fasting. A few years ago, I did a 36-hour fast once a week for about two, two, two plus years, right? And sometimes it went up to 40 or 40. I didn't quite get to 48 hours, but 40 hours I did get to. And there's a lot of benefits I felt I was getting, right? I had one interesting thing. I don't know if, if you've done a little bit of a longer fast. That was a challenge or I didn't expect would be a byproduct of a fast. And it has nothing to do with your body. It's that you end up with more time because you're not preparing food, you're not cleaning the dishes, you're not menu planning. Menu planning can be a big part of our day, right? And so my wife and I, you know, th there'd be a little bit of a mismatch cadence if she wasn't fasting. Sometimes she fasted also, but then there'd be a cadence mismatch, right? Because she's still taking the time to prepare her food and and definitely a schedule alignment thing, right? I, I've yeah. seen that as well. And then, of course, in, you know, we're a services firm, uh, high tech advisors, and so a lot of the work that I end up doing is with clients, like coffees and teas and happy hours and lunches and all that stuff, right? It's why I switched to uh, black. That was another benefit of it, I guess, is that I was taking all the sugar and cream. Right, which is especially in our industry, if you're doing these coffee meetings, right, that's a lot of fat to take on. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. A lot of sugar, and you know, to, to honor these fasts, I went to black coffee, and now that's, I can't go back. That's it. It's uh, you know, sugar and cream are out of the uh, out of the mix now. So. Yeah, I, I, I never took a liking to those, even though it's kind of funny because back in India when we used to have the tea, 
it's practically like drinking candy. Milky it's tea so is what sweet. they call it, right? It's milk yeah. and it's sugar, so much sugar. It's like you're drinking, it's, it's like hot cocoa almost, right? But different flavor, the sweetness level. But then when I, for whatever reason, the States, it's always been black coffee. Speaking of that, right? <laughs> black coffee. There you go. And so, you know, in high tech advisors, you know, we have an engineering practice and then we have a talent acquisition practice. And then we also have kind of, I call it management consulting, which, which it touches in several layers, product roadmaps, uh, program management, cyber, customer data analytics, and so on. But we do end up, you know, working with a lot of executives and leaders and, and just all kinds of people. But sometimes when people are evaluating new opportunities or new roles, or they're kind of getting restless in their current jobs and what have you, one of the assignments I ask them is, I ask them to go back and create a priority list for your life. You could make yourself really miserable if you're not happy with your work. It probably should never be higher priority than, say, your health. I tell people to kind of look at, and this isn't just from a work perspective, where do you want to be in five years, right? It's a good focusing problem because then you say, what you do today, is that getting you closer? It may be paying the bills. It may be treading water and doing just fine, but it may not be in your interest to get to where you really want to be in five years, whether it's like I said, with the house or whether it's, you know, from a career perspective, you have to take chances, right? Because one thing you can't get back is time. If you find those ways of evaluating based on time and you put it into the various categories as you've outlined, whether it's career, whether it's your health, whether it's your social, uh, opportunities, right? Because your friends aren't all going to be there forever either, right? You have to prioritize these things to ultimately say, what type of life do you want to live? I have these old books in my office somewhere. And one of them is by Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you know that name, <laughs> <Absolutely>. right? <laughs> That's dating ourselves to 19th century, probably. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he had this thing, which is like, make a list of things that you want to be known for. So you don't end up being known for things that are drastically different by the time the game's very far along, right? Yeah, it's almost, it, 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 that particular paradigm always kind of reminded me of Amazon's technique of writing a press release and working backwards. It's kind of the same idea of don't, you know, ease your way towards an outcome, make it an intentional outcome. Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So... It's been wonderful. The one thing that some of the guests, <laughs> what they liked uh, or they wanted to do was to put me on the spot just to make it fair. Uh, Absolutely. And so you're welcome to ask me anything if you if you wish. I know we didn't talk about that in the prep, but... Uh, no, I've got a great question for you that I would love to hear. Tell me about the, you know, because I do know you do a lot of advising and you don't filter that advising based on a criteria. There are a lot of people that will do, I'll only do advising on uh, cybersecurity because I've got a history of doing this, right? I'm well aware of socks and I know every particular aspect of that. Therefore, I'm comfortable advising you, but you're you're kind of a, more of an all-in type of advisor. Give me a, a scenario where you had a particular mentee or company that you were working with that you had really they were completely different than what you thought going in and how you still were able to successfully advise them and how you did that. There's a little bit of method to the madness, right? So there's some things, and you probably know well as well. For example, if somebody's going on an entrepreneurial journey, it doesn't matter what the domain is. There's some foundational things that they're going to face, right? If they're going to take external investors, there's going to be certain considerations. If they're quitting their job, putting their own money, Getting in, getting the buy-in from the family, from the spouse, if there's a spouse, etc. So sometimes these things are independent of the domains, and so many times what happens is we're talking to people about these things, and these aren't necessarily. You can't create a statement of work around these. It's not necessarily a, always a paid situation. For us, what ends up happening is that if and when there's an opportunity for our engineering team, as an example, to get engaged and build pieces of software for the company, and if it's an early stage company, then they almost get time with Haresh for free. But there are certain things that I've done before I started High Tech Advisors, which were core kind of expertise gaining efforts. So I, I spent a lot of time in product teams, right? And I spent about half a dozen years in telecom. There are a few things where I picked up like individual skills. So in the product teams, right? At high tech advisors, we sell to CTOs, CIOs, and CMOs. 
when it comes to anything with the CTO, I actually have a lot of empathy. And so it could be organizational if the CTO or the VP of engineering, for example, is struggling with you know how to grow the people. Some people aren't working out, for example, those kinds of confidential conversations we can have, right? Going into a situation where it looked like one way, but then it turned into something different. That's happened several times, but typically with early stage companies. Is it because they pivot or is it because they're not articulating what the real problems are as they engage you to begin with? It's just the nature of the problem. There's a the Amazon vocabulary, right? There's a phase where it's high ambiguity phase. After you iterate, brainstorm, you try things out, you'll get to this certain things where you feel like, okay, I can make this statement with higher level of confidence now, whether it's your assumption about a solution that the customer might buy or the, the domain you might want to be in, or even it could be about myself. Understood. I mean, I call that like finding your Z estimate, right? Many, many startups, you know, they wander until they finally find, and it may not be what they were aiming for, but they find traction, right? And they find clarity and that informs kind of a pattern. But you're right. There's a period of time where you're kind of trying to do a lot of things or you're trying to do the wrong thing and you pivot to when you see some opportunity. Exactly. I mean, I've, I've been in probably as a co-founder or early team member, I've been in at least 10 startups in the last 20 years or eight, I would say. And every one of them pivoted. Most of them didn't change like domains, okay? So you could you could do that kind of a pivot too. Slack is a pretty famous version of that, right? It was a set of tools for for a game, right? And they became a you know one of the most effective enterprise tools for uh, business. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and so one startup that I did actually, we we had a major pivot. So we started. My business partner and I, we wanted to, quote, fix the internet, okay? Who hasn't wanted to fix the internet, right? There's a small, <laughs> but, there's yeah, a small so, problem to go after. There you go. There you go. Probably still not as challenging as a container house, but comparable. <laughs> Maybe more successful. So what we wanted to do was, at a very high level, the idea was, okay, let's look at Charles or Haresh based on how much commercial or economic value they are creating to an ecosystem of merchants, that that person is buying from, we're going to give them, give the person a fuel of internet consumption. Okay. So they're, t it's like rewards. Okay. So that they're, it's almost like your own carbon credits. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. It, these credits would be used to make paywalls disappear. They're almost like all access passes or loyalty. Exactly. But, but it's very automated, but you're not thinking about it, right? It's automated, no cognitive overhead. It's like your car. I don't think about my car's gas level except when it's empty. That's all. I, that's the only time I think about it, right? I just go to this store, that store. So in here, you could see how many rewards you have or credits you have. And then every time you buy that Starbucks coffee, you get a few more. If you buy a car, you get gazillion more, right? By Based on the commercial value you're creating for the merchant ecosystem, we're going to give you this credits. It'll be used by, in two ways. One is make the paywalls disappear for a certain period of time for certain outlets that would be part of this network, but also make the ads disappear. So if you went to a site that was ad infested, they would just, it would be like, oh, it's the VIP lane, the red carpet for Charles. On some pages, that might actually be almost no content. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Yeah, 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 possibly. So anyway, that's what we were working on. Similarly, it just so happened that my co-founder and I, we were also shopping for homes separately for our our respective families. And we had a horrible experience. It happened to be my, whatever, third or fifth house, but it was my business partner's first house. And then we we're like, this is totally broken. And so we went and pivoted. Part of it was also there was some constraints or dependencies we were running in on the fix the internet problem, which was to sign up all the advertisers and sign up all the publishers. Right. right, it was Meaning. a scale problem, right? It's, yeah, it's and so it was doable. It was going to be doable, right? But it was just taking its time because, it's, I mean, you you know the B two B sales cycle, right? Trying to get a signature out of an enterprise on anything, right? <laughs> it can take three months. Yeah, exactly. So we ended up pivoting to building a platform for houses, and it was actually very successful. We we sold like half billion dollars worth of real estate, and then eventually it had other constraints it ran into, and it wasn't all to Paul Allen, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. These are, these are individual single family homes. So it was about a thousand no, homes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Just because Paul I, Allen bought probably that much in one year. Uh, oh, he probably, yeah, or more, or more, yeah, right? Exactly. And then, and then there was another example I could mention where it wasn't a big pivot, but these two marketing experts, they come from like market research companies and consumer 
marketing media type of companies. They learned that there's pain involved for small merchants. And you probably have a lot of info on this. It's not a good time to be a small merchant. It's always tough, right? I mean, even with the Shopify's out there, et cetera, right? You're always competing for terms. You're always competing for access. You're always concerned about margins, right? Because the larger companies, especially if you don't have unique SKUs, there's always somebody else that can get Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of challenges, right? That's like the actual product and merchandising challenge. But just to run your business, if you're, say, one or two or $3 million merchant, of course, if you're 50 or 100,000, that's a totally different beast too. But if you're one, two or $3 million business, that is your business. You're probably not doing anything else. If you look at like your workflow or your day in life of, you're probably logging into 12 different systems to track a whole many different things. And if you wanted to get a picture of your business, you log into these all these things and then mentally saying, okay, I've got this much merchandise, this much was sold, I need to plan this way. Oh, and our payments are, we sold, you know, we got so many receivables and it's a mess. And so this particular a pair of co-founders, they were like, okay, we're going to work on this problem. But our goal is to give merchants the two types of analytics, diagnosis type analytics and predictive analytics. And it just so happened as we were talking to them for a while, then this chat GPT thing came out, caught the world by storm, right? As, you, as we all know. And then now they're like, oh, I have to add that interface. In this case, they were planning to leverage our engineering crew. And they're like, do you guys know how to integrate to chat GPT APIs? And it's, I mean, that's not a hard thing to do. Right. Apparently not. Everybody's doing it, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so there's lots there in that domain going on right now. But so they ended up not necessarily pivoting. So I gave you that extreme example of pivoting from one domain to another domain, completely different domain, going from advertising and internet domain into you know selling homes or buying homes online. This pair of co-founders had envisioned kind of solving this problem of giving, basically think of it as enterprise class analytics capabilities to small merchants. But they're thinking about it in kind of like when they started out in like that Tableau-like interface, like, okay, I'm going to give them this nice presentation layer and it's going to integrate all the desperate data sources that they have, right? right? From a visualization, Amazon. a visualization platform, right? Yeah. But then, then when this chat GPT uh, buzz kind of took off, then they're like, oh, I have to have it. And it's kind of interesting because actually just a couple of days ago, we had an event, High Tech Advisors did a networking event and we invited a bunch of people to talk about AI, right? It's like, hey, everybody's talking about it, so we'll talk about AI too, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but there was a, a worldwide leader, more of an evangelist from AWS who was there. We had a principal engineers from F5 Networks or dis distinguished engineers from F5 Networks was there. And then Microsoft Office co-pilot principal scientist type of person was there. A partner from Madrona was there. Now there's so much buzz around AI. A scene from Madrona is like just this week, and it was only Wednesday. He said, I had 30 pitches that all had AI in it. Of course. That's, that's, become, that's become the path people think that's the path to funding and the path to stability. So one of the things that we've seen that's common across domains, how do you tell what is real? This happens in large companies and startups or whatever, right? Which is, yep. when do you know something is real? Whether it's a bit of information or a decision or something. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, what statement can I make with some level of confidence? Or what is my level of confidence about the statements I can make, right? The way I operate personally is that we do have those domain experts. If you want like SOC compliance advisors, we have those, right? But it's not me. And my personal motto is that we understand kind of the foundational aspects of technology and business fairly well. I personally do. But what we also have as an extension, by extension in the team and through the team is the ability to engage experts on behalf of the clients. So sometimes you say that we're experts at engaging experts on behalf of the clients. It comes down to this brainstorming time, FaceTime, and then we understand, okay, you know, Charles is trying to do this or whatever the person is, then we'll go back and think about it and say, okay, I think this is potentially a set of resources or people that could could help you. But if it's those high level kind of foundational questions, look at some of the foundational things, right? Like what's your five-year plan? What's your organization's five-year plan? And if you're a middle manager, one of the things like, for example, that happens is those companies that we had the good fortune of having very clear vision. The leadership gave you their version of the vision and it was very clear. So if you're in middle management, your job was to translate that to your level, 
within your domain? There's a whole podcast right there. I mean, there's business goals and then there were the leadership principles. So they gave a toolbox that provided a certain amount of autonomy at at scaling levels and organizations within the company that allowed them to to effectively jumpstart and contain and create an incubator for building out all of the businesses that came out of Amazon, right? Much as every company, including Amazon, has the faults and imperfections, there are many, many more companies, many companies that actually don't even give you that much, right? You go into a company and it may be a $5 billion or $50 billion company, and let's say you're managing a team of 50 or 100 operations people, engineers, whatever they may be. Maybe it's salespeople. And what happens is then your function is to see how much more clarity you can provide your team that isn't coming from the top. You have to add value. You can't just be a cog or a conduit. When you look at it, the most successful organizations to kind of take the two extremes you provided is when you have role players and all-stars in every position that know their role you end up with a much better outcome. When you add in a bunch of mediocrity into a large organization, you end up with a stymied purpose and no growth and problems that are almost unsolvable. So I do think it also comes down to people. It comes down with the framework. And many times that framework is defined by good hiring decisions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but it's great, great speaking with you. And I appreciate the time and uh, we'll obviously meet again soon in person. I hope your container house comes along well and hopefully I don't get sealed in it and you never find me again. But uh, yes, uh, <laughs> I'll definitely have you out at, at the point when that when that moment finally when it's, sa- when it's safer. To, yes, to, when to, it's safer. To, to, when you don't need go. a hard hat, exactly. <laughs> but uh, by the way, if you want to give us a nugget as far as um, takeaways, parting thoughts, then we can conclude. I think the only thing that I would say is think about where you want to be and start acting against that. And don't be constrained, especially in a in a situation like we're in right now, right? There's so many people that are deferring decisions because they're afraid. If I change jobs, will I keep that job? If I make a risky decision like starting a startup today, what if I can't get funding? I'll never be able to get this job back. Think not so much about your existing situation, but is it going to get you to where you want to be? Of course, don't make insane decisions either, right? They should be formed based on data. But as I said before, the only thing you can't get back is time. And so using it wisely is the most important thing you can do. Oh, that's that's a wonderful takeaway. Use your time wisely because you're not going to get it back. Yep. You hear it from the age of like five, right? Every teacher says it. But you, you only start to realize how true that is as you start to see the end of that opportunity. Wonderful, Charles. Thank you again. Thank you so much for your time as well.